Well, it's been a while since we've been able to do a question and answer night in youth, and it is my joy and privilege to be able to answer some questions that we weren't able to get to in our last Q&A, and some of these questions were also submitted by adult leaders and by youth members as well. So I think we have some good ones to work through tonight, and for our listeners who aren't here with us in person, I hope that this is an edifying Q&A discussion for you as well. But with that in mind, by way of getting the evening started, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Ask for the Lord's favor on this time tonight. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, you are good. You are king. You are the beginning and the end along with your Son and Holy Spirit. And for that, we bless you. We adore you. We bow before you in reverence and awe of your excellencies. And Father, we recognize that the secret things belong to you as our God, but the things which you have been pleased to reveal to us belong to us and to our children forever. That is a promise set forth in the famous Deuteronomy 29-29 passage, and it is a text that we can go to to keep us humble on the one hand, that Though you have been so gracious to reveal yourself in general and special revelation, there are secret things that belong to you alone. And Father, we will never know the full and exhausted intricacies of what you have revealed. But God, there are things we can know that you have revealed. There are secret things that belong to you. And there are also things that you've revealed that we can know and that we should know through studying your word and studying the world around us. And God, we do ask and pray that times like tonight would be a means of helping us to grow in our desire to study your word, to learn that of which we can come to grips with as your creatures, as those who've been created in your image. And Father, we ask that we would become even more wise in our ability to discern between what is secret, that is what belongs to you, God, that of which we can't fully comprehend as your creatures, as finite, limited human beings, and that of which, of course, that we can know as those who, as a result of being created in your image, have the ability to employ reason and rational thought processes to understand the world in which we inhabit. Help us, God, to be good stewards of this life and of this world, and may all of it, in allowing us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, may all of it contribute to our sanctification, to us not just being hearers of the word, but doers, those who joyfully render obedience to you from a heart of worship and a desire to put you on display before a watching world. We do commit this evening to you, Father, with that at the forefront of our mind, praying to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit that indwells within us and illuminates all spiritual truth that you have graciously disclosed to us in sacred scripture. Amen. All right, let's get started. Question one. The question reads, how do I respond to those who say that Christians are judgmental people? Well, that's a great question, and I think all of us here tonight will say that at one point in our lives or another, either we ourselves have been accused of being judgmental towards others or Other people have 
spoken negatively towards Christians about them being judgmental. And when I think about this question in light of Scripture, I think the best way we can go about answering this question is first and foremost to recognize that the Bible calls us to discern or to judge between good and evil. In fact, it would be unbiblical and unwise. It would be dishonoring to our Lord Jesus Christ if we as Christians were not judgmental people. We, we need to be those who can discern right from wrong, good from evil, truth from falsehood. And I think when answering this question, it's important to acknowledge right out of the gate that Christians and non-Christians are judgmental. It's impossible not to be judgmental. Um, even the act of calling somebody judgmental is to commit an act of judgment. So Christians are judgmental people. Non-Christians are judgmental people. It's a misnomer to say that we shouldn't be judgmental. Now, I say all of that by way of preface to qualify the biblical instruction regarding judging others. I think of Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6, where Christ in his Sermon on the Mount says this. He says, Do not judge that you will not be judged. It's where a lot of people who want to call Christians judgmental people start and stop. They read Matthew 7, 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And they say, See, look, the Bible says don't judge. Jesus said don't judge. So you need to stop judging people. Well, if you keep reading, we find that Christ is referring to a specific type of judgment. Verse 2 and following. Jesus said, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Christ is specifically condemning a hypocritical kind of judgment. It's a casting judgment on other people for things that you yourself do and carry out. Um... It would be like telling somebody, hey, stop cussing. You need to stop cussing when you yourself cuss on a regular basis. Or, hey, you shouldn't watch pornography because it's wrong. But behind closed doors, you give hearty approval to pornography. You yourself watch pornography. Uh, it's a part of your life. You have no basis for judging other people who walk in that lifestyle when you yourself walk in that lifestyle. Or as Jesus said, it's as if you're telling somebody, get that speck out of your eye. It's keeping you from seeing clearly, but all the while you have a much larger object in your own eye. You have a log. If they can't see clearly with the speck, how on earth could you see clearly with the log that is in your own eye? And then in verse 6, Christ even gives a positive command to judge. He says, hey, you need to be able to judge that of which is dogs and that of which is swine. And you need to be careful to throw your pearls, that is to share the truth of God, with those who would fall into the category of dogs and swine, of those who would give no regard to the truth of God. So Christ is saying in this same context, saying don't be a hypocrite in your judgment, but also judge wisely. Judge very, very intentionally. So again, um, 
How do we respond to to those who say Christians are judgmental people? We first start off by recognizing Christians judge, non-Christians judge, and the Bible tells us that we are to judge in a very specific way, in a way that is not hypocritical, in a way that is just and objective and fair. That is what I would say in regard to this first question. A very good question, very important question, um, and one that in today's day and age is far too often inadequately answered from Christians uh, defending their practice in the light of critics of Christianity. So appreciate that question. On to the next one here. When compared to other religions, why is it that Christianity is attacked the most at the national and global levels? Well, I think there's a lot of directions that we could go in answering this particular question. For starters, I would say that just on on a broad spectrum here, the reason why people attack Christianity is because it's the true religion in the world and by virtue of human beings being created in the image of God and the law of God being written on the conscience of all humanity, Romans 2, 14 to 16, and as we know from Romans 1, 18 to 32, by virtue of non-believers taking the truth that God has so clearly revealed in creation and suppressing that truth and unrighteousness, it causes them to rebel and push back against the truth of God, which is most clearly personified in Christianity, the one true religion in the world. So I think, broadly speaking, Christianity is attacked so vehemently because of the reality that unbelievers who are living in sin and living in rebellion to God know in their heart of hearts that it's true, and they don't like that it's true. They, they don't like that they are convicted by the message of Christianity. I think, broadly, we could say that's um, a reason why Christianity is attacked the most when compared to other religions. I think another reason is just the claims of Christianity. Jesus Christ says, I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said that every other system of religion and philosophy and anything else that claims to have a way of salvation or a way of a relationship with the God or God's plural um, that preside over creation, depending on what religion uh, you're referring to here, he says all of that is false. I'm the truth. I'm the way. I'm the life, along with my Father who sent me and the Spirit that I will send into the world after I ascend into the kingdom of heaven. So people hear that, and it pushes back against the cultural norm of our day, which is that, hey, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. Or, hey, what's true for you, that's what really matters. Even if it's not true for me, even if it doesn't correspond with the rest of this world, if it's true for you and it makes you happy and it gives you purpose, that's great. You are entitled to that belief just as I am entitled to my beliefs that are completely contrary to your beliefs and completely contrary to what we see in the world around us. The technical term for that view is, um, well, there's two terms I could throw out. One is postmodernism, the idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. All truth is relative. It's subjective. It's a social construct. 
And then the other term that I can throw out in, in uh, thinking about this theme in my response is pluralism. That is, every single view of the truth is equally valid. It's just a different perspective on the one overarching truth. So according to the pluralist, there's truth that exists out there, and every system of religion and every system of philosophy is just a slice of the pie. It's an equally valid slice of the pie because we're all just trying to get a unique perspective on truth. So that's another reason why I think Christianity is attacked at the global uh, and uh, national levels because it, it's contrary to the norm of society and the predominant worldviews of our day. And then thirdly here, and I was just meditating on this passage today in preparation for Sunday school this upcoming Lord's Day, I think the third reason why Christianity is attacked so vehemently is because Jesus Christ said it would be. John 15, verse 18 and following. This is in the upper room. Judas has already left to go and betray Christ to hand him over to the Jewish religious officials and the Roman soldiers. And it's Jesus and the 11 disciples. And this is what Jesus says to them as he's about to be betrayed. Part of his all, um, upper room discourse. This is the, the, the lengthy statement, um, or I guess I could say the lengthy combination of statements that is recounting Christ teaching his disciples one last time before he gets handed over to be crucified. He says this, though, in John 15, 18, that I think really pertains well to our question of focus. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. But all these things they do to you for my namesake, because they did not know the one who sent me. Jesus predicted this, and because Jesus is God, we can expect us to receive exactly what he is warning his disciples of, and us some 2,000 years later about as recorded here in the Word of God. So those are three, I hope, useful clarifications as to why Christianity is so um, vehemently attacked on a global basis. And of course, though it's not as bad as it could be in our nation, we certainly could be heading for a worse outpouring of persecution if things continue to go in the way they're going in our society. Next question here. The question says, do you have to pray in a particular way in order for God to hear and answer your prayers? Well, the short answer to that question is no. Um, by virtue of God being omnipresent, that is, he's everywhere at one and the same time in his creation throughout every period of human history. And by virtue of God being omniscient, that is to say, he's all-knowing. Um, he knows everything at one and the same time throughout human history. Um, God sees all things, and he hears all things. And in accordance with his own providence, he even answers the prayer of the wicked, so to speak, to accomplish his purposes. 
Now, just because he answers somebody's prayer doesn't mean that the prayer itself is pleasing to God. It doesn't indicate that they have God's favor. But there are times when a person who's an unbeliever claims to have made a prayer to Allah or to, to their pagan deities, as it were, and from their perspective and when viewed from the lens of God's providence, their prayer request is answered. Their desire comes to pass. So we would note that in God's providence, he can even, as it were, answer the prayers of the non-believer uh, for his own purpose and for his own glory. But we do know as well that there are distinctions between the prayer of a non-believer and the prayer of the believer insofar that the prayer of the believer is pleasing to God, the prayer of the believer is um, viewed as an act of worship. And as we know from Hebrews 4, 13 through 15, the prayer of the believer ultimately is motivated by the prayers that Christ offers at the right hand of God the Father. If I just may read this from 1 John five fourteen and 15, John writes, This is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. In other words, John's saying that unlike the non-believer, believers can have full confidence that if they ask God prayer, if they, if, they, if they make prayer requests that are in keeping with God's commanded will as revealed in Scripture, God is faithful not only to hear that prayer, but to answer that prayer. So it's crucial. Again, God is sovereign. He's all present. He's all knowing. He sees all things. He hears all things. And as such, God can even answer the prayer of the non-believer in order to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. But there is a distinction between God's reception of the prayer of a believer in that it's being offered as an act of worship and an act of adoration and trust in God and reliance upon God versus the non-believer who asks selfishly, might not even pray to the right God. And again, God is not, as it were, pleased with the prayer of the non-believer. He can still use it, though, to accomplish his purpose. So regardless of the posture the prayer is offered in, regardless of the wording that the prayer is offered in, God hears all things, which means he hears all prayers, and he can even answer any type of prayer as he deems necessary to do so. Let's move on to a new question in light of that response. And I don't think this question is going to be any less technical. This is a very good question that I'm opening up here. Why would God choose to allow evil to enter the world? You know, for the sake of those here tonight and for the sake of the listener, this question has been asked for millennia, thousands of years, and I'm going to provide the answer that solves all the problems. So for the listener and for those here tonight, you never even have to ask this question again. It's going to be solved tonight. I hope you hear the sarcasm in my voice. Very difficult question. Uh, probably the biggest challenge for Christianity, but I'm going to give it my best shot and responding nonetheless. I think to answer this question satisfactorily, it all begins with perspective. Namely, is God in God alone 
the center and the purpose of created reality? In other words, does reality exist for God or is man at the center of reality? That is to say, does reality exist for man? And I think if we look at the testimony of Scripture, we can say that reality exists for God. God is the potter. Creation is the clay. Just as the potter has every right over the clay to do as he pleases, so also does God have the right as creator, as sovereign Lord, to do with creation as he pleases. So with that in mind, I, I want to look at a few scriptures that I think corroborate what I just said. Of course, in Romans 9, verses 14 to 24, God makes that exact same argument in regard to salvation and damnation. That is to say, God as creator has every right to choose to save some and to choose to not save others. He has every right to do that. Um, Listen to what Paul writes along this line. He says, what shall we say then in respect to God choosing to save some and not save others? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I want to stop right there briefly, because that was going to be another um, reference that I gave, namely the, the Exodus narrative in regard to God's dealings with Egypt and delivering Israel from Egyptian slavery and captivity. God's saying, Exodus 7 And in the passage he cites there in Romans 9 is from Exodus 9. But Exodus 7, right after Moses has just pleaded with God to provide him somebody who can be a spokesperson for Israel because Moses was insecure about being the spokesperson for Israel. Listen to what God says to Moses, Exodus 7 and following. He says, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He shall be your spokesperson. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his hand. But God says this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. What's God saying there in conjunction with what Paul's arguing in Romans 9, 14 and following? God's saying that I am going to put my glory and my power on display through judgment of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart so that I can manifest signs and wonders throughout the nation of Egypt and delivering Israel from their slavery and captivity. And so that, and here's the key, so that the Egyptians will know that I am God. So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So God, which is perfect, which what he says is perfectly consistent with what Paul writes in Romans 9, because Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is God. 
God is saying that I am at the center of reality. Everything in creation exists for me and for my purposes. Continuing back in Romans 9, where we left off, verse 18, back in regards to salvation. Paul says, God has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Paul says, why does he still find fault for who can resist God's will? On the contrary, Paul says, in response to that hypothetical objection, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his power and to make his power... er, Let me back up. I I misread that verse. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So God is saying through Paul, just like he said back in Exodus, I am at the center of reality. I can do whatever I want through the salvation of some and the damnation of others. I can choose to harden the heart of the most powerful people in the world, rulers, kings, principalities, and so on. I can choose to harden those people so I can be put on display through judgment and salvation. This is also the case with regard to Jesus' earthly ministry in Mark 4. He teaches on the parable of the soils, Mark 4, 1 through 10. And in verse 10, it says, As soon as Christ was alone after uh, telling this parable, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And Jesus was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside, those who I have not chosen to reveal the mystery of the kingdom of God to, those people get everything in parables. Why? Well, Jesus says for this reason, verse 12, citing from several Old Testament prophets, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Jesus is saying, I want these people to not have access to the truth of the kingdom of God, because for reasons known only to myself, I've chosen not to disclose that truth. To them. Ultimately, we know one reason for why he would not want people to have access to the full counsel of the mystery of the kingdom of God at this point in his earthly ministry is so that he could be handed over to be crucified so he could redeem the people that God sent him into the world to redeem. So there was a purpose in um, dis- not disclosing himself to certain people. But also going back to what Paul wrote in Romans 9, God, for reasons not only to himself, doesn't want to save everybody. He has the power to save everybody. He has the power not to allow evil and suffering and wickedness to come into the world. But for reasons not only to himself, he's chose to allow those things to come into the world. One more text I'll read that just further solidifies this regarding the life and ministry of Christ before I land the plane. Listen to this. Peter, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. He's saying the stone, citing from Psalm 118, 
The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble, referring to those who have rejected the truth of Christ, the gospel. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So God has appointed salvation of some and judgment of others. God has chosen to manifest his glory in a fallen, sin-cursed, broken world to enable himself to reveal every aspect of his glorious character. Every perfection of God, every attribute will be manifested in this world through all the sin and the wickedness and misery that exists. That is a hard truth for us to swallow and come to terms with, but it's true nonetheless. Should we expect anything else? After all, in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He says, I am the purpose for creation. I'm the goal of creation. I do as I please with whom I please. And you creatures must submit to this truth. So why does God allow evil and suffering in this world? If I could say it as simply as I can, for his own glory. That's why. For his own glory. So he can put himself on display through various elements within a sin-cursed fallen world, through the salvation and damnation of particular peoples, through the judgment of wicked nations, uh, the deliverance of nations that he chooses to set his favor upon, and many other reasons that God knows that we simply can't wrap our mind around. It's always for his glory. When you get that right, when you put God at the center of creation's existence, and the purpose for why we're even here in the first place. If it's about God and his glory, everything makes sense about suffering and wickedness and so on. That was a long-winded answer to that question, but a very important question nonetheless, one that is likely controversial to some, but I would submit on the counts, on the uh, testimony of the full counsel of God's word, it's the most faithful to sacred scripture. Brings us to the next question here. Does sola scriptura mean that scripture is the only authority for our lives? As many of the youth here tonight know, um, some of them even wear the t-shirt from time to time, whether it be at school or at um, church. One of them is wearing the Soli Deo Gloria t-shirt that we did from Encounter a while back. But we did a conference for Encounter 2021.2 back in December. And the theme of that conference was sola scriptura, which is a Latin term that simply means scripture alone. And historically, what scripture alone, what sola scriptura is saying is not that the Bible is the only authority for all matters of our life. Rather, sola scriptura says or argues that scripture is the ultimate authority authority for all matters of our life. And that import that or that distinction is very important. It's a very crucial distinction. Because in God's providence and in his wisdom, he's given man many authorities in this life to make sense of the world in which we live. 
For example, the Bible does not give us a thorough or robust depiction of the laws of thermodynamics. The Bible is not going to tell you how to invest in the stock market. The Bible is not going to explain the processes of geology or the discipline of physics or mathematics and so on. And really, the Bible, though it does infallibly recount history, it's not an exhaustive account of human history. It's the history of God's purposes of redemption, but it's not an exhaustive account of human history. So we make that distinction only to say this, and I think on the basis of Psalm 19, making this distinction between Scripture being the only authority versus Scripture being the ultimate authority is valid. Because in Psalm 19, and this was one of the passages that our guest speaker for the most recent Sola Scriptura encounter preached on. In Psalm 19, you have the psalmist, who's David, ascribing praise to God for his revelation in nature and his revelation in Scripture. Verses 1 to 6 is David's praise to God for how he's clearly revealed himself in nature. And that's general revelation is the theological term. And in verses 7 to 14, we find David praising the living God for revealing himself in Scripture, special revelation. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it means, for one, all truth in reality is God's truth. If anything is true in this world, it's only true because of its origins and roots and the infinitely wise and holy character and decree of God. First thing we need to say about that. Second thing we need to say about this is that if there's truth outside of Scripture— and Scripture doesn't speak to those truths, there are other authorities, there are other sources in this world of knowledge that can help us better understand the truths that God's revealed in creation, but for reasons known to himself, he has not been pleased to reveal in Scripture. In other words, you don't go to the Bible to help you be cured of pancreatic cancer. You go to a doctor who has studied the way the body works, specifically the pancreas, and is able to provide a means of finding a cure for that very serious disease. You don't go to the Bible to learn trigonometry. You study that discipline under a subject matter expert. The source of the truth that undergirds trigonometry, the source of the truth that undergirds modern medicine is God. He's declared all truth. He's revealed all truth in creation. But there's a fine distinction between truth that's been revealed in general revelation and truth that's been revealed in special revelation. So that brings us back to the question that was asked. Is Sola Scriptura saying that Scripture is the only authority? Absolutely not. It's saying that Scripture is the ultimate authority for life. Insofar anything is revealed in Scripture, it's the ultimate authority for our doctrine and our lifestyle— and insofar that anything true has been revealed in creation, it will always line up with the testimony of Scripture. In other words, general revelation and special revelation will never be in conflict with one another. 
There may be things addressed in one or the other that aren't addressed in the other. So, for example, there may be something addressed or revealed in general revelation that's not addressed or revealed in special revelation, and there may be something revealed and addressed in special revelation that's not revealed or addressed in general revelation. Be that as it may, those truths, regardless of how or where they're revealed, those truths will be compatible and harmonious and in agreement with one another. Very good question to the person who submitted that. Takes us to our next one here. Let's see. If the Bible is without error, how can we take promises about raising children in the way they should go in light of children of believers not being saved? See Proverbs 22.6. Okay. It's a very important question, a question that I would not be surprised if a parent asked that because I think that many parents either know of other families where those parents raised their kids in a godly biblical fashion, but the kids went off and altogether rejected the the Christian faith and want nothing to do with it, or as parents, they themselves grew up with those who were raised in a way that is honoring to Christ and and was raised in a way that is biblically based. And though they saw that take place as a child, their friends just completely forsook biblical Christianity. But in passages like Proverbs 22.6, which is contained in the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God, we find this instruction. From Solomon, he says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, what do we do with that? Does that mean that there's parts of the Bible that just simply don't come true? That that God's word has error? That God's word can't account for every possible situation that may arise in one's spiritual life? Well, of course not. We know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all of Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is without error. Scripture is the Word of God. So how do we make sense of this verse and the principle of children who were trained in a biblical manner, in a Christian manner growing up, who've just forsook Christianity, who wants nothing to do with the Christian faith. Here's what we do with that. First off, as we would with any portion of Scripture, we look at the genre of the literature. We know that the book of Proverbs is not didactic instruction. It's not a promise. That's not the genre of Proverbs. These are not unconditional, guaranteed statements that if you do X, then Y will always follow. Rather, Proverbs, by its very name, is a list of wise sayings. That's what the word Proverbs means. It means sayings. And we know from the Old Testament record, particularly from 1 Kings, that King Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, was the wisest man of his day. And as a wise man who was able to live for a really long time, Solomon was able to see many things take place throughout the tenure of his reign as king of Israel. And as his reign as king of Israel, Solomon would have seen many instances potentially where 
parents raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And their kids, as a result of receiving godly parenting, they grew up and became godly men and women. That is the ordinary pattern of what happens when parents are faithful to raise their kids in a God-honoring, Christ-centered, biblically-based environment. But there's also instances in a fallen world, and for reasons known only to God, where kids who are raised as good as they could be, their parents were faithful to the Scripture, their parents were faithful to ensuring that everything they poured into their kids was honoring to God, and yet those kids just rejected it all. They walked away from it as they grew older. And as a result, they didn't model what Solomon records here in Proverbs 22.6. That shouldn't be a problem for us as those who hold to a high view of Scripture, simply because we know that the purpose of the book of Proverbs was merely to describe what ordinarily happens in a fallen world, not what is always going to happen in a fallen world. When you understand the book of Proverbs, particularly the genre that Proverbs is, it's wisdom literature, and this is a list of sayings based on observation, based on how it appears to the naked eye. Uh, Hannon here hates when I use this term, but based on that of which is phenomenological, this is phenomenological language. This is observations that Solomon is making with regard to how things work in a fallen world. Ordinarily, for the listener, take heart. If you train up your child in the way they should go, ordinarily, more often than not, that child will not depart from that as they grow old. That is the, that, that is the common reality that is going to take place if you're faithful to the word of God. But we also need to humbly recognize that God is sovereign over the outcome of our parenting. God is sovereign over the salvation and sanctification of his people. And as we mentioned earlier in reference to the issue of evil and suffering and sin in a fallen world, we know that it may not be God's purpose for our children to be saved, as hard as that may be to hear. There is a chance always that our children are not numbered amongst the elect. That doesn't mean that we don't evangelize them with every fiber of our being. That doesn't mean that we're not faithful to what Scripture calls us to do in training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What that means is we pray, we be faithful with what God has entrusted us to, and we leave the outcome in the hands of a sovereign, holy, and righteous God who will always do what is right, 1 Timothy 4.10. Very important question and a very good question for us to consider together this evening. Next question. Can you explain the whole essence thing again? I love the way that question's worded. Uh, For the listener, just so you know what probably um, motivated that question to be asked in our Sunday school lessons through the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum that Grace to You published. That curriculum is a basically a survey of church history. And in our survey of church history, we have been learning some of the philosophical underpinnings of different doctrines and uh, different beliefs that originated in the earliest centuries of 
church history, of the Roman Empire particularly. And one of those philosophical underpinnings that we discussed had specific reference to the issue of essence. There were three fundamental categories that we discussed as a group, and by way of review for the youth that are here and for any listeners who may have been following our series there, the three categories that are really saturated with philosophical connotations are these. The first was essence, and as it pertained to the question that was asked tonight, the essence of something or the substance of something, essence and substance being used as synonyms, essence or substance simply refers to the whatness of something. Essence or substance equals what something is. So essence is the what of something. What is the what is that? That is what's being asked with the question of essence. The second category that we talked about doesn't pertain to the question that was asked, but I'm going to address it now while it's on my mind. You have essence, what something is, the whatness of something. Existence, the second category, that something is. So existence pertains to the thatness of something. So essence, whatness, what something is, existence, thatness, that something is. And then the third category that we talked about that has philosophical undertones is um, subsistence or personhood, who something is. And of course, as we've been talking about in our study of forerunners of the faith, those three categories have direct application to doctrines such as the Trinity. If we were to apply it to this conversation, the essence or the substance of God is deity or divinity. What is God? What is his substance? What is his essence? Well, it's it's Godness. It's deity. That's what God is. We speak of the existence of God. We're speaking of the fact that God exists. We talk about the existence of God. We're saying that God is. He exists. That's his thatness. So essence, what God is, the substance of God, existence, the thatness of God, the fact that he exists, and then personhood or subsistence, it's the who-ness of God. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one divine being eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three who's within the one undivided divine essence or substance or being of God. So I hope that clarifies for um, some of our youth who may have been interested in that question. And of course, for our listeners as well, I hope that clarifies um, the question that was asked and provides maybe some further clarification on how some key philosophical categories pertain to something as foundational to the Christian faith as the doctrine of the Trinity. And that brings us to our last question of the night for this Q&A time. And the question says this, Why does Jude cite from non-biblical sources in his letter since he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Or if I could maybe get to the bottom of, excuse me, the bottom of this particular question. Jude's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why is he citing from works that aren't also written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? 
Because we know that the only works that we have access to that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are contained in the canon of Scripture. Why is Jude supplementing his argument in Jude with those writings? Why is he not using those writings that are inspired? Why is he citing from these random writings as well? And just for the sake of clarifying, I think I know the passage that this question is referring to here. Jude 14, there's this text. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So right there, you have an explicit citation in Jude 14 and 15. You have an explicit citation from the book of Enoch, a non-canonical Jewish source of literature that all of the Old Testament saints presumably would have had access to, but that particular writing is not contained in the Old Testament canon, which presumably means that that writing was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So why is Jude citing from that to bolster his argument in his New Testament letter? Well, I think the answer to that question piggybacks well off of one of my responses to a previous question in regard to the fact that all truth is God's truth. Jude would have recognized this, as would have the apostles and the prophets and all of the men that God appointed to write that of which comprises sacred scripture. You see, for Jude to cite from a non-canonical and presumably non-inspired record elevates and bolsters the truth that general revelation, though not inspired, can provide integral and foundational insights into understanding the world around us as God has designed it. And in the case of this passage that Jude is is, um, using in the context of his letter, he's saying, hey, listen, this isn't only recognized, like the, the thing I'm arguing, Jude says, this isn't only supported and recognized in canonical and inspired literature. This reality is also recognized in ancient non-canonical, non-inspired writings as well. It would be like, to make the example maybe a little bit more concrete, it would be like me trying to defend something from the Bible and going to a secular source that agreed with what I'm trying to say. it's, It's saying that, listen, yeah, inspired canonical literature supports what I'm saying. Jude makes several references in his letter from the inspired word of God to bolster what he is arguing throughout his letter. He's certainly doing that. He's certainly aware of that. But Jude's also going a step further. He's saying, listen, readers, not only does Scripture agree with what I'm saying, inspired canonical literature, but non-inspired, non-canonical, ancient literature that goes back all the way to the seventh generation after Adam. That also agrees with what I'm arguing as well. Jude was a Jew, likely writing to uh, Jews as well and probably Gentiles as well at this point in church history. 
But Jude's saying you have access to this secular, non-canonical, non-inspired work of literature that confirms the biblical basis for what I'm arguing in my letter. That's powerful. Shows that God's truth even exists in resources that he didn't inspire and that don't comprise the canon of Scripture. God's truth is just as truthful and just as valid and just as profitable in general revelation. That is, revelation that is outside of the Bible, which we know, of course, as special revelation. I think that hopefully provides some clarity as far as how we can make sense of Jude citing from a a non-canonical, non-inspired source of literature. And we know from other places in the New Testament as well, such as Acts 17, when Paul cites from um, secular Greek philosophers in his appeal or in his apologetic for the validity of the Christian worldview. We know there's other parts in Scripture where you have the biblical author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit citing from non-inspired, non-canonical resources to bolster and supplement the argument they're making in their inspired writing. It's a powerful argument for the truthfulness of God's revelation, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, and we should use that in our witnessing endeavors and in our endeavors to defend the Christian faith. Well, with that being said, that brings us to the conclusion of the, I believe we had eight total questions that were submitted for tonight's Q&A, and took us uh, almost to a full hour. So I'm grateful for the questions that were submitted. And uh, to the listener, I do hope that these questions and responses were thought-provoking and faithful to the Word of God. Um, As always, we just encourage you to be a good Berean and to seek out the Scriptures to ensure that what has been communicated during this Q&A were true, were cogent, and uh, of course the same exhortation goes to the youth and adult leaders who are here tonight. But nevertheless, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then um, we will draw this question and answer session to a close. Let us pray. Our God, you are the God of truth. We spoke of essence as whatness, and existence as thatness, and personhood as whoness. And Father, by virtue of you being the the one immutable and simple God. That is, there is no change in you and nothing that is not yourself can cause you to be who you are and do what you do because of those glorious realities, Father. We know that you are the very personification of truth. God, all truth in creation is simply a reflection of your very being of your very existence, of your very personhood. And God, it is that ineffable and incomprehensible reality that is at the forefront of our minds tonight as we've sought to consider truth, Lord, truth from your word and as we made reference to throughout the course of tonight's Q&A, truth that is revealed and discernible outside of your word in general revelation. Oh God, I do pray that for our youth and adult leaders here tonight and those who were not able to join us and for those listening here, wherever they may uh, be and whoever they may be, we pray, Father, that all of us would be eager and diligent to understand your truth. Lord, to cherish it above gold and above the greatest 
treasures and, and valuables and prizes and anything in this world worth pursuing, God, we pursued your truth even more diligently than we pursue those things. And Father, may we defend your truth as we have opportunities to do so. For we are called in your word in texts like 1 Peter 3.15 and 2 Timothy 2.24-26 to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, for the truth that we've come to know and believe, and to do so, Father, with gentleness and reverence. And God, I pray that we would not only be diligent to seek after truth above all worldly goods, that we would not only be diligent to defend truth, Father, with zeal and with earnestness and willingness, but God, in doing so, with all that being said, would we also honor you and glorify you in the how of defending your truth and seeking your truth. For it is, impo- for it is possible, Father, it is possible to seek truth and to know truth and to defend truth and yet not honor you, and even to take it a step further, as is the case with Satan and his legion of demons. It's possible to know truth. It's possible to to even masquerade as wanting to present truth to others. But those fallen angels and Satan, Lord, they don't know you. They know truth. They've got deep head knowledge. They have far more knowledge than we ever could have. But they don't know you, Father. And may it never be said of anybody in this youth ministry, anybody on the youth ministry team and youth committee, and Father, may it never be said of anybody listening to this recording that they know truth. They even seek it. They even defend it and present it to others, but they don't know you. Father, may the head knowledge that you so graciously enable us to obtain make the 18-inch trek into our hearts that we might love you more deeply that we may walk in greater intimacy with you in personal communion with you as our father in heaven god we love you so much and we know that it's only because of you having loved us first in christ jesus that we could ever love you at all or know you at all we are the undeserving recipients of your sovereign grace mercy and redeeming love Father, may those realities always motivate us and propel us into lifestyles of worship, both in our individual lives and in our lives before a watching community and a watching world. I pray for your blessing upon every person here who's present with me tonight at this youth gathering and those who are listening to the recording. I pray you would bless them for the rest of this week. Help them to be good stewards of the tasks and responsibilities you've entrusted to their care. And may they know you and enjoy you forever for their spiritual good and for your ultimate glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.